Hey Rockheads, if you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1183, with guest Chris Love. Recorded Thursday, August 20th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's another episode of .NET Rocks. Another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. I have not thought about Jeff Maciolik for a long time. Well, you know, before Lawrence announced, before Jeff announced, there was another woman, Karen Caballero, that announced. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she said, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I love it. So that's where the term rockheads came from. There you go. Anyway, that's enough history. How are you doing, my friend? I am well. It's good to be home for a couple of weeks. You know, we're trying to get the end of summer in here. Sure and, is. Because uh, conference season is crazy. There's Tech Intersection in uh, September in Monterey, and then the fall with Amsterdam and uh, Vegas. It's going to be a busy, busy fall, my friend. Yeah, and we may we may even have a few other surprises up our sleeve, but we can't talk about it. Can't right talk now. about it, nope, because it may not happen. So. No, not happen. You know, <laughs> for every five things we plan, only one thing happens. But anyway, we'll, we'll, it'll be a pleasant surprise. All yep. right, well, let's roll the music because I've got another in my series of shitty things for the internet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? And uh, for those who didn't listen to the last show where I did this, there's a Twitter feed called Internet of Shit. And uh, they talk about all the stupid stuff that's connected to the internet and, you know, make fun of it. And, you know, I've been making fun of stupid stuff connected to the internet for a long time. So anyway, this is another one. If you go to tinyurl.com slash stupid bottle, <laughs> it's actually called hydrate with an i not a y hydrate me smart water bottle but it's pretty stupid all right it's connected to your phone and it lets you know when you need to drink your water because you know why thirst fails you sometimes <laughs> you need something more reliable than your thirst just saying right smart water bottle something you can spend your well-earned money on nice there you go it was successfully backed. It weighed six hundred thousand dollars. Stupid people, stupid bottles. Well, there's an argument that's that by the time you're thirsty, you're already dehydrating. It's too late. That's right. But okay, okay. But come on, can you really? Are we really going to depend on our phone for our habits? Isn't our phone our habit already? It is a habit. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily <laughs> a good one. I'm just saying, think, people. Just saying. All right. Well, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1093, the one we did with one Chris Love, where we talked about mobile first. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when you build your websites and things, you, you build them in the mobile design first because it scales up a whole lot better than it scales down. And past guest and friend Rick Strahl had this comment where he said, Excellent discussion. Chris, I really like your idea of hanging out with other dev teams to see how they are doing things. There's so much to learn these days and so many different approaches that it's mind-boggling to mm. try to dig this stuff up and figure it all out on your own. Right. But to see 
other people actually put all the pieces together in a production environment, that's something very different and mm-hmm. much more interesting. There's so much to learn and so little time. Yeah. I love it. You know, they we could almost make a series of just going in and hanging with different dev teams and talking about their stack and their development process and their infrastructure. Like, this, there is a ton to know there. It's a really interesting part of the equation. So yeah. I loved, I really appreciated Rick bringing that up. So, Mr. Strahl, I know you're coming on the show real soon now, too. We're just working on the scheduling for you, but a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media we post on. We put every show up on Facebook and Google+. You can comment there as well. And if we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And there you go. And that brings us to Chris Love, who we were just talking about. Chris Love has over 20 years, yes, that's right, of web development experience, you know, back before CSS and JavaScript. He's built a wide variety of websites and applications in those years. In recent years, he's immersed himself into the modern web application space and lives almost entirely above the API. Currently, he's focusing on solving the problems developers and architects are having, adopting a winning mobile-first web strategy. Uh, Chris has authored three books, including his latest high-performance single-page web applications. He's a seven-time ASP.NET MVP award winner, member of the ASP Insiders and Internet Explorer user agents. He's also authored several JavaScript libraries, and Chris regularly speaks at user groups, code camps, and other developer events about modern web development topics. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, guys. It's great to be back. Great to have you back. I think when we had you on first, it was the tablet show, right? That's right. I think we did two tablet shows, including the one that we were together in Dallas. Yeah, that's right. And for those who don't remember the tablet show, this is sort of a little side thing that Richard and I did. It was .NET Rocks, but it was all about mobile tablets and and all of that stuff and all the- and a lot more cross plat back before cross plat was so acceptable in the Microsoft space. Yeah, we were just looking for the best ideas, and that was when uh, there was a lot of ideas being thrown on the wall, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, tablet show. Okay, well, mobile web stuff. Uh, now you're talking about optimizing mobile websites. Have we? Uh, are we at the point where mobile websites are cool and they work and they're responsive and now? We need to continuously optimize them. We, well, I think the technology stack has progressed, and it's, I think it's been there for a while because I've been able to achieve this for a few years uh, to my acceptance levels. Uh, when I'm given the freedom to do so, I'll, I'll me cage it that way. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that, I think there's a I think there's a lot of, uh, I guess, misunderstanding and wrong attribution to browsers in general and what you can do with HTML5. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night I went back and I was reviewing some stuff to try to just make sure I had my mind right for this talk. But uh, uh, there was an article, I think it was published in April earlier this year. It was comparing HTML5 to native. And, I, and you know, that, that question has been going on for several years now. Sure. But, you know, it had a list of pros and cons for each one. And it listed a bunch of pros for native and implied that the web couldn't do things like geolocation and offline and storage. And those are been key things that have been supported for five and six years, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, the web's there. What I find auditing sites and going into development teams is we're building the experiences wrong. Okay. And I think uh, there's been some good articles throughout the year that, that other people have written. There's one coming off the top of my head right now from uh, Peter Paul Cooch on uh, Quirks Mode. 
where he he kind of starts to talk. I think it's Peter Paul Cooch. I'll verify that and get you the link. But um, basically, he's talking about back-end versus front-end developers. And it really mirrors what I'm seeing a lot when I go, especially into enterprises. They're forcing a lot of back-end developers to be front-end developers. And what I'm finding is that these back-end developers are trying to force back-end architectures into the browser. Right. And I'll, gi- I'll give you a, a just horrible example that I had to experience earlier this year. Uh, the team was, they were really smart developers, but they were really skilled middle tier type developers. They were, uh, they really liked service bus, for example. It was right. like, and they went through the trouble of writing a service bus layer to recreate everything service bus could do in JavaScript to ship up to the browser. Ooh, in service bus. Oh man. Wow. So when it was all said and done, they had 600 kilobytes of JavaScript, and they had a partially working login page and one page that was a repeater of things, and that was all it was. Okay. For 600K of JavaScript. But you know what, though? I mean, can you blame them? Because the whole message for developers has been stuff whatever you can in the browser and make it behave like it was never designed to behave. Well, what I'm seeing is there, there, and I keep, uh, when I talk to guys, I'm like, Go back and watch the Billy Hollis Grok talk for Codeheads. Yeah, <laughs> and that and, and honestly, that's what I'm that's what I'm really seeing. I'm seeing developers that just feel like they have to write one more line of code, and mm. and, and and just they're they're living out exactly what he was talking about in that little ten minute uh, bit that he did. Right. You know, while it was funny, it was very real. That's why it was funny. Yeah, because we can all you know we and what he's talking about is Billy Hollis basically. It played uh, sort of a reverend who was like, you know, mm-hmm. we're all addicts. We're code addicts. And um, our first inclination to solve a problem is write some code. And that's not true. Your job isn't to write code. Your job is to provide software that works. Well, and on the front end, your job is to provide a user experience that engages users, ensures that they do the things that you want them to do that are profitable for you. Yeah. Or if you're building internal line of business applications, you want stuff that your coworkers can be productive at. Your job is to provide a solution. Let's face it. Right. It's not to write yeah. code. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, Mark Miller brought it up on that recent uh, interview you did with him about cognitive load of things. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal. You know, we, we design things that induce stress in people's minds. Yeah. Not only does that make them not want to buy stuff from us, but when it's our coworkers, that just creates the anxiety in the workplace. And it, it's emotionally and physically draining on our coworkers, and that leads to data entry issues and and just you know poor morale in the office. And mm-hmm. it, it's subtle, but it's real. And it's one of those things that's hard to measure. And I don't think there's a whole lot of like research per se that's out there, but it's it's there. And there's you know there's psychological studies that I've looked at that that can directly correlate to these kind of things. So getting back to this uh, whole idea of just you know making the browser do things that it stuffing stuff in there that, uh, that it wasn't really meant to do. That's been sort of the experience of web developers, hasn't it? I mean, uh, the the browser was initially a document presentation mm-hmm. layer and, uh, and, a, and a way to navigate. And then we sort of hijacked it because the, let's face it, the users wanted it. The users wanted to do all this stuff. Right. We've had a great, we've had a great progression over two and a half decades now. And you, know, you, you you mentioned my bio. I've been doing stuff for over 20 years, and and I wrote my first web page. As far as I can remember, it was somewhere in early 1992. Yep. May have been late. May have been late 91, but I'll just say 92 to be safe. Yeah. And honestly, what we were using it for was 
uh, I was actually doing a re- I was on a research project as an undergrad, mm. and we would publish articles, right? And that's what we do. That's what it, that's what I saw it as for the most part back then was was like publishing, essentially long blog articles is what we relate to now. But our stuff, and it was like you said, it was just a document repository back in the early days. Yeah. And you know, gradually over the next year or so, I started seeing. The potential there as CGI started coming in, you know, from a common gateway interface, yeah. um, and uh, you know, then Amazon kind of kind of took hold back. I think they were they started in '94, something like that. Uh, and so you could start seeing where this was this could go. And I remember trying to pitch this to some people before I graduated school, and they were just had a hard time comprehending it. Right. But we were trying to, at that point. We were getting images in there, and, and CSS wasn't even available. I think in '94. I think that was '96 when we finally got CSS, and that right. was so we could make it look more appealing to people. Remember, we had nothing but gray backgrounds for the first few years because yeah, sure. that's what the browsers were, and we couldn't figure out how to override it. You know, mm-hmm. so we've made this great progression, and in the meantime, user expectations—just uh, normal people—you know—they they expect an experience that. You know, whether or not they can enunciate it, it it's engaging to them. Right. And you know, when the when the mobile thing really started getting traction a few years ago, we saw some some good ideas as it relates to user experience being um, implemented. And I couldn't help but look at those and say, I can see how to do that in HTML and CSS. And so I started kind of playing around and figuring out how to do some things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's always that, that's that's a big part of my developer culture is performance first. And, you know, a lot of people give the web a hard time about being really slow. Wait, mobile first or performance first? <laughs> or do the two go hand in hand? <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. I know what you mean. Well, I call it, I call it, I put everything under what I call user first development. So yeah, sure. Yeah. Performance is a first class citizen. Mobile yep. is a first class approach and right. touch uh, is a, is a third part of that because that's something I see being left out quite a bit too. Right. Um, so yeah, and and I started, and you know, one of the things about everybody talking about native applications are fast, and I'm thinking I'm not experiencing this. I'm I'm experiencing applications that I have to go through several steps steps to install, and then it takes 10 to 15 seconds to launch them, and especially on Android at the time, uh, I'm using Android a little less for the apps, but mm. um, it just didn't respond very well. In fact, right now my my iPad's getting a little dated, and it's becoming really sluggish to respond to just me touching things on the screen right now. It's driving me nuts. Just as a matter of, um, just to, just to bring it up, I have also experienced slow native apps and I've experienced slow web apps and the other Mm -hmm. way around. I, I don't think that the, you know, whether it's a web app or a native app is what's really slowing it down or speeding it up. I, I totally agree with you. It's about the way you architect the application. Right. And I get a lot of grief from our peers about, tackling stuff with the performance first approach they want to they say performance is just something you should do at the very end i'll give you an example um gmail i mm-hmm. i use gmail probably like a bunch of people i just let stuff pile up in my inbox right because i mean i get hundreds of emails a day and there's just no way if i spent time putting things where they should go or whatever i know you outlook people have you know mailboxes that things just nicely go into but um but the gmail app on my iPhone is slower than just pulling up a web page. And the reason is the Gmail app has to have all of my messages before it can show me anything. And the mm-hmm. web app is architected such that it only needs the first page. Right. So that's, that's a really good example of an architecture that is slowing you down on the native side 
and on the web side, not. Right, and that that's a that's a get the data from the server issue, right? Yeah. And so there's 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 really two sides to the equation, and I think the predominant side that developers think about is that server side, but you know, Steve Satter's kind of proved seven or eight years ago that there's a golden rule in web performance optimization mm-hmm. that 80% of your performance issues are on the client side and 20% on the server. And now that mobile's here, he's changed that ratio to 95% as the client and 5% on the server. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it. We haven't had Souders in the yeah, show in we a really long gotta time. Get Steve we should Sowers. give that guy a call. He's great. I totally agree, Richard. We got to yes. catch up with Steve Souders. I miss Souders. Yep. He, yeah. He's, uh, but you know, there's a guy who's just thought about this problem a lot. Mm. Uh, he, he was, he, you know, he's turned up issues that we just weren't thinking about, like CSS render. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I have this flashback when you, you know, CSS is from 96. Is I remember 96. I remember looking at CSS and going, nope. <laughs> no, thanks. But then I was still trying to believe in XHTML at the time, so I was deluded. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny how things come around. Yep. Yeah, you know, Steve's done a done a, a wealth of research, and he 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 really spawned a whole group of disciples. It, you know, his little group there at Yahoo, and then he took it over to Google. And yeah. But now he, now it's spawned into a whole community. You know, we've got conferences like Velocity. They're nothing but web performance optimization stuff. Yeah. Well, and yeah, he was the track chair for Velocity. I, I, I yes. He was my track chair when I spoke there. Yeah. Um, and I got to speak this past May, and I'm speaking at the one in New York in October. And a great, great experience. Um, one of the best conference experiences I've had is being part of that. You know, just being around people who think like I do about this. It's, it's just wonderful, you know? And, and I think that's, that's something I'm seeing too. There's, there's kind of two responses I get when I do presentations. If I'm speaking to a predominantly enterprise group, I get a lot of negative feedback. When I'm speaking to a front-end, what I call front-end web development group, I get great feedback, just positive stuff. It, it's kind of a, a dichotomy, I guess that's the right thing, but it's just complete opposite ends of this, the spectrum there. So Chris, can you give us some real meat here in terms of how to optimize mobile web apps? Well, I'll tell you what, um, there is a go-to tool that I love called webpagetest.org. Love it, love it, love yep. it. One of my favorites. Yep. So Patrick Meehan created that a few years ago. Um, and what I did, I actually ran .NET Rocks through web page test a little earlier. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so you have, as far as mobile goes, you, you do an M dot site. So you do adaptive. Um, right. Right. So that's, that's kind of a no, no, uh, to be honest with you. You want to try to get away from that and go to responsive. In um, the interest of uh, full disclosure, we have a responsive website ready to go. Almost, yeah, good for it may you. even be out by now. Uh, no, it's not. No, <laughs> today. it may be out by the time, <laughs> They're the show to. publishes. Exactly. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so you're, you're, and honestly, your M dot site loads really quickly and it's very thin yep. and that's, that's very, that's, that's very admirable in the way you want to do it. There mm-hmm. are some kinks there, but what I want to do is I want to go to your main site right now okay. and kind of point out some, some basic stuff that I'm seeing. I'll give you a link to the, the webpage test that I'm using okay. that I ran. Um, so for those who don't know what webpagetest.org is, all you got to do is put your URL that you want to have it run. And it needs to be a public URL. Now, you can create a private instance of web page tests for internal stuff, but I won't go into that. And then you select what browser and also what data center you want it to be run from. He's got it set up at data centers all over the world. And there's different combinations of what browsers are available, you know, for 
for example, the main ones, you know, got Firefox, Internet Explorer, and Chrome, and um, some mobile devices and stuff like that set up. That's not consistent all the way around, but generally you've got the big three, Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer available pretty much at, at different data centers around the world. And that's, an, that's important because you want to see what it takes to load something if you've got traffic, say, from India, because I get a lot of traffic on my blog from India. So that that's something I'm interested in knowing is what is it what is it like to the Pacific Rim, for example? Yeah. Nice. So there's there, there's a couple of things that we want to look at. The there's a you get a, essentially a scorecard. Now you're going to hate me for this, but your scores are F A D F F and nothing, which is the CDN. So I don't think you're using a CDN. Um, <laughs> so those those are bad. Um, now if you go down a little further. There's there's kind of like some scores that you get. One one in particular that I like to pay attention to is is a, a metric that Patrick created called speed index. And effectively what that is is measuring the area under the curve. And what he does is he he does some analysis to determine how much of the page is rendered. And you want to get a speed index that's under a thousand. Now yours isn't very bad. It's uh, 2156 is on the run that I made. Uh, now if I run say a newspaper site through there, I can get 15 to 15,000 to to 25, 30,000 for that score, which is awful. Um, and then you got like total render times and stuff like that. Now, I think because he's running some virtual machines and stuff, I, I think there's about a 10 to 20% lag compared to what I actually see locally when I run mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of give it a little bit of leeway with that. But the speed index is something that I kind of take to heart. But the other thing that's really good to watch is there's two – uh, it runs a first view and a repeat view. The first view is unprimed, which means that nothing's it's getting nothing out of browser cache or history. Mm. So that's that's if somebody comes the very first time to your site, this is what it looks like. And the right. next time around includes the the cached assets. How much does that change it? Now over to the right of those two rows, you'll see like a film strip view, and that's mm -hmm. interesting because he takes snapshots automatically of your site loading, so you can start seeing how it starts rendering. And until it's completely done. Now, the one I'm looking at, your the .NET Rocks homepage does not start rendering until two seconds, and that's that's a very key metric right there, hmm. um, because at three seconds, if you haven't actually rendered so that the person thinks it's rendered, the stats and the survey show that right you've lost 46% of the people that wanted to open that page. Wow. They've they've already hit the back button to go to the next search result, or they've already started typing in something that competes with you. Wow! Chris. Or they're just, or the, or I like to say they're they're on Facebook looking at cat videos. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that film strip view is very interesting because it it kind of helps you visualize how it's loading. Now the other thing that I, that I really get a lot out of is the waterfall. And if you're not familiar with the waterfall, that's really listing how every asset of your page loads. And the reason we call it a waterfall is when you look at it, you see the load times kind of kind of go off a cliff. And what you really want to see mm. is something that's very short and very perpendicular or 90 degrees straight down gotcha. is the, the preferable because that means it it doesn't take very long to load. I mean, it's just a quick glance. Sure. Now, when I loaded yours, you've got an immediate issue with time to first byte. Right. Yeah, you've got it takes it takes a just over a second for the first request for the initial markup to actually get to the browser and and get read. Yeah, I see that. I'm looking at this as well. Yeah. So what that means is that the the, the server side is having to do a lot of calculations to build that home page. Mm. Now your your page is obviously somewhat static, but it you know you publish one .NET Rocks episode uh, a day, three days a week, right? That's right. 
So your page only changes three times a week. Correct. Right. So uh, that's, ideally, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right because the uh, the comments are are served by another site altogether. So yes, you're exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And the reality, and we all know this, is that this thing's running on Azure websites using SQL Azure in the back end, right? And mm-hmm. it's fetching from the database every time it renders a page. Um. Yeah, we do. We do have an output cache on there. I took Steve uh, Steve Smith's mm-hmm. advice to heart and yes. did the one second output cache. Right. Yeah. That only matters if some more than one person hits it in a second. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and output cache is, is the great thing. Now, ideally, what you need to do is make sure that IIS caches it as static content. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been interesting. I've had some, some discussions lately uh, about static versus dynamic. And I'm working on a node module to essentially render my, my application because I do single-page apps. And effectively, what I'm doing is I'm compiling everything into one blob of markup. Uh, well, let me rephrase it. I, I, depends on how big the site is, but generally, I'll say the above-the-fold markup um, into the initial payload. And I want to keep the individual views and templates and stuff and, and files because it makes it a whole lot easier to, maintain, to manage as an edit, editing. So that's, that's a developer comfort. But you know, I can create a grunt module and node module underneath it to effectively compile that into static markup yeah. and even automatically deploy it, say, to um, uh, my Azure stuff uh, or even S3 or whatever I've got set up uh, for that. Uh, and that's a whole other discussion. But So the first thing I would do with your site and is the server-side thing. And this is where that 80-20 rule comes from. So the 20, first 20%, let's say, of yours is that time to first byte. Right. And that's, that's where the cutoff is. Everything above that is client-side uh, business. Mm-hmm. Now, from there, your 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 waterfall isn't too bad. Most of what you're doing is images, but you've got a couple of images that are pretty large. You've got a tags image that takes 700 milliseconds on this one, and then you're getting something from Twitter. You're getting a JavaScript file from Twitter, and that's taking 1.6 and a half seconds mm-hmm. to load. Mm-hmm. And uh, JavaScript is a blocking task, and while you can put an async attribute on there, it uh, you still got to realize it's it's a blocking task, and that depends on how large that file is. But I know like these social widgets when you're getting them from Twitter and Facebook are performance killers. Yeah. In fact, there's um, Andy Davies and one of his buddies over in Britain have done some great research about how third-party scripts affect uh, the experience on your site. Sure. So that, yeah, that Twitter script is not very big. It's only 35 kilobytes in size, so that's not too big. But it takes forever to download. Right, because it, and that's up to Twitter. You're getting it from them, so there's exactly. only so much you can do about that. Yeah. Exactly. So th- those are kind of things I would, and you generally with the Twitter stuff, you can you can just write that yourself without having to have their code. They're just doing that to kind of help people who have no clue what they're doing get something on their page. Um, and you know we're smart enough. There's there's plenty of examples how to just write the stuff to automatically tweet it out or whatever it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're trying to get like a list of tweets about .NET Rocks. I didn't see that on the page, but I think there was a spot there for it. I just don't think there was any content in yeah, it. Yeah, no, there is no content. It's completely broken. Hey, I, I really just got, I've been holding my tongue here, but I got to tell you, I ran our new site through a web page test as well. Uh-huh. First byte time, A. Keep mm-hmm. alive enabled, A. Compress transfer, A. Compress images, A. Static, uh, cache static content, F. So apparently that's uh-huh. the only thing we're not doing right. Well, that's something that's easy to fix too. So very easy to fix, yeah. Yeah, and these are some of these things. 
you know, people tell me, oh, it's there's too much work to to do this stuff. There's so much low hanging fruit that yeah, yeah, can yeah. get you down and under that three second milestone right. consistently, and generally right at the, one second. And then there's, there's an argument about the need for performance on some sites too, right? Like on DNR sites, not that bad depending on where you are. I'm sure mm-hmm. if the folks are having problems with it, they'll send us emails because we're happy to do that. You know, my daughter's uh, webcomic, Always Raining Here, is a site that I tuned extensively using web page tests. Mm. Uh, because, and their, the problem there was there was so much load whenever they published a new page, yeah. it would take the site down. So it's like, I'm not performance tuning because I'm trying to make money or make people happy. I'm trying to keep the sucker alive. Yeah, whereas, exactly. Whereas for us, that's not what happens. People. Yeah, we don't get. A, we don't have as big of issues. Right. But the, the interesting thing was also some conscious decisions we made. For example, in a web comic site, what's the most important thing? The it's images. The comic. Images, right? Right. And so, when we, in order to get an A in compressed images in web page performance tests, we had to damage the look of the comic. Ah. Right. And so there was a, a conscious decision to say, you know what, it ain't worth it. Yeah, the, you know, we're gonna get an F in compressed images because she, it's it's an art site and the art matters and that's what it's gonna look like, right? You know, and and I'm I'm also and we had to go to a CDN like there's no two ways about it. Enough traffic, that kind of volume. There's a lot of that site running from CDN. My biggest problem in performance of the page now are all third party components. Mm. It's yes. the Google components and the Twitter components. Those are the things that get you. Again, there's very little recourse there. Like, how do you fix that when it's not your code? Right. Yeah. You. You. Well. Yeah. We could. I could have a whole big discussion about that. Um. Anyway. <laughs> well, hold hold it right there because Richard, you know what time it is now. Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to run web page test on the time it takes for the average listener to laugh at our DNR giveaway jokes. <laughs> mm. Not not good. F. <laughs> <laughs> how can I fix that, Chris? <laughs> There's no output cache that'll save you no. here, dude. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Carl E. Doyle. Congratulations, Carl. Yay! Yay! I'll clap for you, sir. I'll clap for Carl. And uh, Carl just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection, a big pile of awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, folks, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Wait, obviously, for about 10 minutes and then answer a few questions. <laughs> I, think he's, I think he said three seconds, but yeah. Join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And also, we like to ask our guest, Chris Love, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? So, uh, I'm not much of a toy boy, but one thing I am looking at doing is getting a GoPro camera because I've started running, and in particular, running mud runs. Ooh. Oh, man. Tough mudder things? I am doing a tough mudder in October. Wow. That's a 10 to 12 mile obstacle course with yeah. a lot of fun and fire and electrocution involved. That ain't easy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's abusive. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, did a, I did a mud run 
uh, last month and it was just a blast. And I'm like, and so I started running me. Um, and, uh, I got, a, I got a 5k I'm doing in a few weeks and Good for anyway, you, so I, yeah, I'm thinking about doing that, but right now my wife and I are in the process of buying a new house. And of course I asked my wife to give me some ideas of what we might buy with $5,000 in technology. And because IOT is really popular, why don't we buy a lot of smart appliances for the house so that we can be wherever and know what's in our refrigerator because that's so useful. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a Samsung refrigerator that, um, and I didn't buy it because of this, but it has this Wi-Fi enabled thing. There's an app for it. And really all it allows you to do is see the temperature, right? Right. Right. Yeah. See the temperature. Does it allow exactly. you to change temperature? No. It allows you to see the temperature. And see, that's that's the deal. I mean, you've got to have to make it good. You've got to control it. So you know, the problem is that most of these things are a solution looking for a problem, right? I mean, the right, exactly. The, it's yeah. not really, you know, how? Oh my! How did we survive as a species so long without this kind of convenience? I don't know. Yes, yeah, so I'm looking at Nest and some other things like you know to be able to remotely turn lights on and off because. I mean, yeah. if we leave the you know the kids or whatever leave lights on or something like that, I can't get them to shut the door automatically yet. The but maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'd like something where I could lock my child in their bedroom. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. There you go. Hit a button. Mm. <laughs> Take that. Get, I got one that won't leave his bedroom. I got the other <laughs> one that won't go into her bedroom. So you keep the door open. <laughs> it won't allow them to shut it. Uh, yeah, one 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 has pretty much slept his way through the summer. Um, uh. So. Yeah. So yeah, uh, you know, smart appliances is just kind of a, a thing. Um, but yeah, I think one thing, like I said, the GoPro and then stuff to deck out the house a little bit to make it kind of cool and fun. So yeah. Yep. Some good gadgets there. Yeah. So we've come a long way with this uh, remote stuff. And by the way, I should be able to control all that stuff through a web interface, not a native application. There's nothing there that's <laughs> native to the phone. I'm just say, just saying. Just saying. Just that's saying. Funny. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with web page testing, and I think that's the part that people don't really realize is that if you once you start performance tuning, you have web page tests open a lot. Like yes. you're just all right, make these changes, redeploy, rehop the site, you know, now run web page test again. And from different locations too. It's like, oh, we've got people complaining about performance in Europe. Okay, well, I'm gonna use web page test one of the Europe hosts and let's see how it behaves. And, you know, the cool thing is there's an API. You can actually set up a script in a, as a node module, and it's got plugins. I know for Grunt, I'm a Grunt guy, uh, and I assume there's one for Gulp, where you could effectively say, automatically run these tests after you've deployed it, say, to an, uh, uh, an Azure app, app site or whatever it is, a website's instance right now, mm -hmm. and let's see what's going on and have it automatically do that. And so uh, Tim Cadillac, who works for Akamai now, he, uh, he created a plugin called PerfBudget. And effectively what you do is you can you can put in metrics that you want to make sure you're under as far as uh, web performance optimization, essentially load times and stuff. And it can go off, automatically run a web page test for you and give you back a report so you know where you're failing or succeeding. And it can be automated. And there's several companies, Etsy's kind of the one that's out there a lot, um, where they actually have a, a, a TV in their developer you know, area that's constantly showing the dashboard of what their performance stats are. And if it gets out of whack, they pretty much just stop and try to fix it, you know? Right. It's, it's an end on cord moment. It's like, oh, we're behind on the, on the performance issue. That's what everybody focuses on. Right. So when you're in a continuous deployment kind of scenario, which I think a lot of, especially startups, 
are kind of in, you know, in, so it's effectively the same thing as breaking a build at that point. Yeah. It is effectively yep. broken. Absolutely. Yep, Cause it's, it's, it's one of your key measurements. So, so Richard, you were saying that you, you hosted all your image, your daughter's images and stuff on CDNs. I pushed as much as I could to max CDN just cause it got so peaky. They put out a page a week and when that page hits, they would just tip over. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, right. So for full disclosure, a WordPress site, B running on my Windows server in my server closet. Now, admittedly, <laughs> I don't have a normal setup for most people's homes. It's a pair of 100 megabit connections in an air conditioned server closet with gen- generator backup and so forth. Cause you know, Hi. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've only got a pair of 100 megabit connections. And so when the Comet became popular and got slammed, I just simply did not have enough bandwidth. And uh, this, the connections would pile up. And uh, the VM running that, uh, you know, there was sort of a dis- discussion point here of, do I start distributing multiple? My first response was, let's put it in the cloud. Get it out of here. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, the girls are, you know, there's a certain time limit on what they're doing here. And it's like, oh, we don't want to set all that stuff up. And moving a WordPress site, by the way, <laughs> really oh. sucks. Yeah. It's so yeah. painful. Ask Julie. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and these CMS is like WordPress and stuff. Yeah. Those are some of the worst performing sites that I analyze. Yeah. Well, and it, and that's what's interesting about WordPress can perform. It's just like anything else. The default configuration is easy to manage and performs like crap. Right. And the right. performant version is very challenging. You spend a lot of time tweaking and tuning and the right set of plugins and so forth. But right. in the end, the main offload was over to Max CDN. And I got nothing bad to say about Max CDN whatsoever. I, sp- I spend $10 a month with them. Mm-hmm. to get CDN services out of them for North America. And honestly, that's expensive to me. Yeah. So I've had I've had the images for my blog in S3 with CloudFront in front of it for, I don't know, five or six years now. And I think my big month was 20 cents for hosting. <laughs> oh, boy. But I just yeah. have a lot. I have a lot of, they're, they're moving terabytes, right? So yeah. it's just, they, they're eating a lot of bandwidth. And, you know, uh, Azure's now got CDN stuff on top of uh, yeah. blob storage. And that works great. And in fact, I'm probably going to move all my images over to Azure in the near future because I'm, I'm moving all my – I've got an Azure VM that I've got some sites set up on. And I'm going to move them to Azure websites because I'm actually going through and kind of trying to rewrite them as I have time to do it, which is less and less, it seems. But uh, <laughs> we'll get there. So, so yeah, the CDM was something when Steve wrote his first book, Steve Souders, that he recommended doing was like Akamai or Who mm-hmm. right then. Yeah, and I was like, oh, my God, they're expensive. They're so expensive. And it, it was really an eye-opener for me, having been a guy who worked on sites that spent $100,000 a month on Akamai yes. to look at my daughter's web page mm. yeah. you know, and, and go, how are we going to do this? And then, you know, 10 bucks a month, okay. Is that actually going to be usable? And after a while, it's like, yeah, no, this made all the difference in the world. There is no... Uh, substitute for that offload. Yeah, and you were talking about degrading image quality, and I don't, I don't, I don't know what the image, you know, deal is with that or not. But there's a lot of resources out there to automatically yeah. that, like, I, I actually pay for Kraken.io, and I just give them the stuff, and it automatically optimizes the images for me. Now, one of the things too is knowing is having them sized correctly. Yep. And that that takes us into a whole new world of responsive images, and the new the new features in the browsers that are supporting that. Forget about responsive images. Most people who put websites together don't even understand that they images. can't make, uh, yeah, they can't put a 
10 gig, you know, or 10 megabyte image as an icon and expect yes. kind of performance. I mean, I still see that today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see it all the time. Because people don't know how to resize an image. You know, like you got to go to these, you know, I read newspapers and, I, and a lot of times there's like, you know, small, uh, not necessarily thumbnail images, but let's just say they're like 150 by 150 yeah. dimension rendered images but if you actually go look at the real size it's like 1600 by 1900 right. uh, pixels wide <laughs> and they just squished it down with the with uh, html and it's and it's not even optimized even at that res, you know dimension right. so yeah. so hey there's another one there's another common one that's coming up on your 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 waterfall here and that's that you don't have a fav icon and what that means is that it's returning a 404. And there's a story that I use when I'm doing presentations about web performance. Tell us what a fav icon is. So a fav icon is the little icon that shows up in the address bar right. for a site. So it's, it's a way to kind of effectively kind of add some branding to the experience in a browser yep. for your company. So usually it's, your, it's just a real small icon image of your, your logo, for yeah. example. Um, now, Instagram, when they launched... They were getting hammered with people signing up, but their server was falling over. And it took them an hour or two to figure out why the server couldn't handle the load. And what it turned out is they had forgot to put a fav icon up there. So every time anything was requested, the server went to the disk to see if the fav icon was there or not. So when, wow. you've, got, so when you've got 30,000 people trying to load the page constantly, the disk starts thrashing. And the mm. server can't respond and it falls over. You wouldn't think that not having a fav icon would cause all that strife. So, yeah, the, the, the founder of Instagram that gave the little presentation that I pulled this from, he, I like his quote. He's like, your scaling problems are not going to be sexy or something like that. They're not yeah. going to be glamorous. They're going to be stupid, simple stuff that, right. that keeps you from scaling. And that's that's effectively what their problem was. Thirty-five thousand visitors. Well, that sounds like a, a massive amount. That's really not. Yep. Um, you know, I I learned about eight years ago, thanks to Marcus Friend and Plenty of Fish, that the real limitation is the network cards only support like sixty-four thousand simultaneous connections. Hmm. And I know from having some sites that got big traffic spikes and stuff. You know, I used to have a. In fact, I sadly had to throw the the the, the server out this past week. Um, I, my first server that I hosted stuff on was a dual 500 megahertz uh, server, and I had like 300 sites running on it. And occasionally, I'd get some spikes of traffic on there. And I know I could get 30,000 simultaneous hits, and I'd still see 4% CPU utilization. Wow. You know, it just wasn't that much strain on the server. And uh, you know, but but if you've got something like this 404. Now you've got something that's really not part of what you would think is the web pipeline, but it is. Um, mm. And so that, that can really bring you down. So Yeah. So the, uh, the image stuff, this is a big deal because most of the payloads right now in, for web pages are images. And we're, we're at unprecedented highs for page loads. The typical desktop page load is now 2.1 megabytes. And that's for home pages. This is from httparchive.org, mm. which, again, is Steve Souter's property. Yep. And he monitor, he goes out and monitors these things and publishes the stats twice a month. So, and then the mobile is just under 1.2 megabytes. So the average desktop experience for the home page of a site is would not even fit on a three and a half inch floppy, and the mobile version would barely fit on a three and a half inch high density floppy, right? Floppy, Chris. Uh, that's the way. I, that's the comparison you, I use. Can you define <laughs> floppy for most of our listeners? 
Well, I'm not talking about the big five and a quarter, even the bigger <laughs> ones before I got into computing. But the, you know, those are those were small. And then you had the plastic ones. They were three and a half inch diskettes that we used back in the early '90s. Let's say Windows 3.1 and Windows 95 timeframe. Um, yeah. And that's what I used back in college. And I had hundreds of those floppy disks everywhere. <laughs> sure. But you know, I put my master's thesis on one of those. And I remember it was right around 280 to 300 kilobytes for my master's thesis. Wow. Okay, wow. so the average page is like seven times the size of my master's thesis now. That's, that's putting it in perspective, <laughs> really. We just forget just how much bandwidth and stuff we're just oh, wasting know. these I days. Know. Do you remember when a T1 used to be fast? Yeah, it was, it was magic. <laughs> 1.5 megabits. Exactly. And now if I go to a hotel and, you know, I get 1.5 megabits down, uh, forget it. It's too it slow. Sucks. It sucks. Too slow. Well, and the, and you know, it's not necessarily the the, the one point five megabits. What it really boils down to is latency, round trip times. Yeah, that's right. And this is why it's important not to have a massive amount of resources to load a page. That's the other thing. I don't see bundling and minification on many sites. Yeah. So the average mobile web page, for example, has over a hundred assets that have to be requested to compose that experience that page. Now, I build single-page applications. I can build a 400-page single-page application. And depending on the number of images, let's just say I could have 20 requests total. Right. And have the full application loaded. And it'd be probably about 200 to 300 kilobytes total. Again, that depends on the the images and what actually needs to be done to compose it. But Mm -hmm. then again, I'm going to try to optimize those images. And you can optimize images fairly, fairly easily. And most images can be shrunk in size without degradation of quality, visual quality, by 30 to 60 percent. Interesting. To, it's interesting what Richard was saying about uh, the webcomic and yeah. how you must have done some compression, Richard, but just not really bad, right? Um, yeah, we did. We did. I let the artist set the compression level. Right. And when I suggested, hey, you could compress this more, we played with a few of them. She goes, I'm just unhappy with the color registration. Like, gotcha. It's it's art stuff, right? So it's still right. compressed. It's just not. It's not compressed enough for. And I, and I bring that up primarily to say, like, web page test is not the be all end all of anything. Right. Right. No, like, it's a tool. It's it's just a tool yes. for get you to look in places, but it has set arbitrary values over what it thinks an appropriate amount of compression is. Mm-hmm. Right. right. You could compress it more than what it's suggesting too. Right. You know, you could use other formats like PNGs that are, you know, that are great for vector diagrams. Like there's lots of ways to deal with this stuff. It's just the, what I like about web page tests is it makes you look in all the corners. Yep. Yeah. But. The you can also make a conscious decision as we have to say okay those well we're compressed all these things that don't matter but it's like hey this banner and the main graphic they matter on how they look and we're not going to compress those past this threshold even if our tool is grumpy at us about it exactly exactly so that's that's kind of all eye in the beholder some of that can be automated some of it obviously can't Um, and then you got things like art direction you got to account for so it can get a little tricky when you want to say automate responsive images. And I'm kind of trying to find a good solution that I can effectively just set up, set up a node module to just execute some tasks to make stuff for, for customers, you know, because we may need four or five different sizes of an image for a product to make it responsive so that we give the right size to a small screen, tablet kind of screen and desktop and so forth, right? So um, 
that those are kind of important. The other, the other part of it that's really growing fast and furiously right now is the amount of JavaScript that's being loaded, and that's getting extremely out of hand. I mentioned way out of control. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I mentioned that one experience where they had 600 kilobytes before they really even started building anything that was usable. Um, but 600 kilobytes is kind of a common size of JavaScript now, and that to me is sad because uh, I can. I, because I, I know it's not that hard to do a lot of the stuff. And I think, like we, I mentioned before, developers are trying to do too much in the browser. Um, the browser is primarily a read-only a medium for almost everything. And you've got to realize that. And I had, actually had a customer who who just kind of came to the realization on their own last year. And he just, he just looked at the team and he said, look, 90% of what we got is just read-only. Why do we need all this stuff? It was even worse back before bandwidth was acceptable. You know, mm-hmm. when we had... 1.5 megabit downloads and even slower. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why j- some JavaScript projects were abandoned because it just took too long to load. Well, you know, and they, they still do, right? So relatively. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I see is an average of like when I have the sites that I personally evaluate, I would say the average is probably 22 uh, individual JavaScripts plus about 20 other inline script blocks in a page. Um, this is all, this is all unhealthy. Right, yeah. and what we're what we're what I see far too often is the reliance on what I call fast food frameworks. Right. Yep. Quick fix. They're quick fixes. They're full of fat, syntactic sugar, and <laughs> and and, uh, and no nutritional value. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh. you know, and I get a lot of grief about this. Is what I talk about when I go to enterprises. I get a lot of grief saying, "Don't use Angular. Don't use React." But you say you that. Know, I. I tell people not to use things like Angular and React and Ember because they, to me, they don't add a whole lot of value. You can okay. you can do stuff fairly quickly and very easily with micro JS libraries or just straight up vanilla stuff. Um, for example, I've got a little library I call Dollar Bill. It took me three hours to compose, and it's basically a replica of jQuery without support for outdated browsers, and it's like eleven kilobytes in size. Hmm. So you're saying don't use jQuery, don't use Angular, just write it yourself. Just be awesome. <laughs> right. And that, that, that freaks out people because I can tell you from interviewing well, not developers everybody can the last do two that, years. Right? Well, and that's just it. They, they, they won't take the time to do it. They're just like, well, they've learned jQuery, they've learned Angular, but they don't know what's going on. So they can't, they're not really able, and you know, like last year, but it was on Angular. Now Angular is yesterday's business, and this year it's React, right? And React is like the Hardys and Carl's Jr. of fast food frameworks, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. There's massive amounts of memory leaks in it, and it's a lot of code. And it, despite they're trying to market it as fast, it's actually not. And does Aurelia fall into that category too? You know, I haven't evaluated Aurelia. I, uh, I did have some good conversations with Rob as he was going into making Aurelia, and he did some things. I haven't evaluated enough to really you know, say one way or another about it, but he, he should, if my understanding is he made it modular, which was one of the main things I was trying to emphasize that I did not like about Angular. It's one big giant blob. And if you make it modular enough, then it kind of follows my, a micro JS kind of strategy at that point. Yeah. But it gets to this mindset of, I don't have a big problem with you having code in your page as long as you're actually using it. Right. You know, that's what drives me nuts is you've got these libraries and huge tracks that aren't in use. Yes. I would say probably five to 10% of the JavaScript being loaded is actually used. And the same goes for CSS. So there's a great node module called UnCSS that uh, I think Adi Asamadi wrote. And what you do is you just you run your your page through this module and it generates a CSS file 
based on the CSS rules that are actually that are used. So, like if you have the he ran a bunch of pages that were using Bootstrap. Yeah, and I think he, I think he found only eleven percent of Bootstrap was even being applied on the pages. <laughs> I, wow. I went to HTTP Archive, which they're, they're the guys who basically keep the stats right. for, you know, page size and stuff like that. And just looking at their end of 2014 report, where average page size went up 15% from 1.7 megs to 1.9 megs mm-hmm. for an average page size. Mm-hmm. And the biggest growth areas were CSS, which in one sense, I say that's sort of good news. It's not a lot of bytes. It was like from 46K to 57K, mm-hmm. but which is a 25% increase. But that says to me, all right, we're putting more stuff into CSS. More people are using it. JavaScript came in, only grew 7%, but it was almost 300K of the page. Yes. Wow. And and it's a blocking task, which means everything stops mm. while those, those scripts are being loaded. Then it has to be evaluated. And the larger the script is, the longer it takes to evaluate. Right. It also depends on how you load it, too, right? I mean, I, it was one of the things we did at Strange Loop was modify the way JavaScript was loaded to get it out of a blocking behavior. There, there's some things you can sort of get it out, right? Uh, absolutely. And there's gonna look, this can be a little advanced, a little more tricky, but um, by and large, if you just don't use so much, it's not as much of a deal. Yeah. And one of the problems that I think is helps propagate this is that developers just test for performance on their local machine using localhost. Mm, yeah. yeah. And oddly enough, it's pretty fast. <laughs> and what they really need to do is load it up on a mobile device over a, a 4G or even a 3G network. Mm-hmm. And see what the experience is like, and that's why I like that web page test having a 3G network on their iPhone mm-hmm. yeah. device because that really amplifies things for you. And yeah. you know, like the the Chrome Dev Tools have a, have a mode where you can go into mobile and you can set uh, a pseudo bandwidth throttling, so you get a better idea what that's going to look like. Hmm. Just having a page, you compile a page, dump it onto a publicly facing IP, and then run web page test to look at it from Europe or from India. It's mm-hmm. like, here is the bad scenario. Like, this is what you've built, really. Right. What your customer is going to see. You know, and the other thing, too, is um, that I didn't point out on there, there's a, there's a little dollar bill thing on the right-hand side of that top yeah, score thing. That. So Tim Cadillac, who I already mentioned, he created a site called whatdoesmypagecost.com. Hmm. And he did it because he was doing a project for Radio Free Europe, I think Radio Free Europe, who's trying to reach into developing countries with, with news and information. So you know there that 3G is about what you're going to get, and most people are on phones. Oh, by the way, the uh, 20% of the U.S. uses their smartphone for their primary computer over over uh, cellular networks. Yeah, which is an interesting stat. It's getting bigger too. Yeah. So so he what he tried to what he did was he went out and I believe he got like the cheapest published data plan in each country, so you can actually see what it costs to load your page in different countries. It's actually called what does my site cost. Yeah, so if you hit the little dollar the little dollar bills off the web page test, that'll take you to Tim's site and it'll show you what it costs in a bunch of different countries. So like Vanuatu is going to be extremely expensive. And that's a conservative estimate too because it is the lowest available. Yeah, I think yeah. it is the lowest available just so you could get you get the idea of what it what it's going to cost and yeah. there's a there's a there's a similar there's a related story to this. Um Christian Hallman, who now works for the Microsoft Edge team, he used to work for the Firefox team. Right. He tells a story about when he went he went into a bodega, and they had a uh, like an aisle promo for one of his favorite beers, and it had one of those QR codes to take you to a page for a promotion they had, and it took forever to load. So he did some evaluation based on his data plan. If if he was over his data his data limit or whatever, it would have cost I, th- I don't know like twenty dollars to download the page. And he's like <laughs> he's like uh, cardinal rule in web development: 
don't make it cost more to download your page than it costs to buy your product. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and what if your product is free like ours? We're screwed, <laughs> Richard. Yeah, you know, what are you gonna do? Uh, you know, exactly, Chris, it's exactly. really your timing is awesome because we're just, you know, we've been working on this problem for a while, and rather than put band aids on our site, mm-hmm. we decided to do a whole new site. And fortunately, it's getting really, really good marks. So, um, and that's I'm good. Really anxious for everybody to see it. And I, and I think right now we're at a point where I think a lot of people need to think about rebooting their web presence. Mm. Whether it's internal or external, yeah, because the technology has changed so much, and I, 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 like you said, putting band aids and, and just hacks and stuff in place just complicates the this, the, the user experience, in my opinion. It makes it yeah. harder to maintain as well. That's awesome, Chris. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been great. Yeah, it's been it's really good meat and potatoes uh, show here. And where can we see you talk or, or read your blog or anything else like that? Well, my blog is love2dev.com. That's love, the number two, dev.com. My Twitter handle is Chris Love. And I've got a very busy schedule coming up, just like you guys, or y'all. Let's get that right. Oh, uh, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, next week, August 25th, I'm speaking at the Dallas ASP.NET user group, and I'm doing a talk about responsive web design. The next night, I'm doing the Dallas HTML5 meetup, and we're going to talk about uh, CSS styles um, and just uh, tips and tricks kind of thing. That would be tonight because it comes out on the 26th. Okay, so you've already missed my, my <laughs> ASP.NET user group talk. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, the week of September 14th, I'll be at Dev Connections in Las Vegas. Yes. And I believe I have a talk. I'm doing the CSS uh, talk again, and I'm doing one on single-page applications, uh, kind of again, it's kind of a tips and tricks kind of talk. And then October 9th, I'm doing a full-day modern web development workshop in Philadelphia. And the ne- next day, I'm doing two sessions at the New York City Code Camp. And then that Monday, I'm doing a web performance single-page application talk at Velocity. Nice. Awesome. And... Uh, We'll see what happens after that one. So the the next week I'm running a mud run. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, good luck with that, and I hope you get some good gadgets to help you. And, man, stay away from those crazy refrigerator things. Uh, I think you're right. <laughs> All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a